Come with me to unlock the secrets of Dursetto with Alone in the Dark. This week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back with you once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So winter has fallen here in Toronto. Uh, The past couple of days, we've had some snow on the ground. I hear some uh, ski hills have opened in the area, and the big one in the area, Blue Mountain, will be opening in a little while. That makes me very happy because aside from gaming and podcasting and all the other fun stuff I do. Skiing is one of my passions. I really love doing it. I actually only started doing it a couple of years ago, but uh, I fell in love with it very quickly. So I'm always really excited when winter comes around and uh, and I can uh, I can get my skis out and uh, and slide down the hill a little bit. But enough about that. It is time for the news. We've got quite, quite a bit of news to cover this week. It's been... Uh, a pretty heavy two weeks in the fo- in the way of uh, news that's relevant to the show, so let's get right into it. So about two weeks ago, Lori and Corey Cole's Hero U project did reach its funding goal on Kickstarter. I talked about that project over the past few episodes with Lori and Corey Cole, the creators of uh, of Hero Quest or Quest for Glory, I believe it's called. And uh, they did they did they did reach their goal. They came in just under the wire at four hundred nine thousand dollars, so only nine thousand dollars above their four hundred thousand dollar goal so that's really great congratulations to them and we hope to see what hero you brings to the table in the near future so also i know that last show i had mentioned that chris roberts's star citizen project had funded well i wasn't quite right on that i know i did say it off the top of my head because we didn't do news last week on account of the fullness of the doom show but um when the last show came out, they actually still had about two days left on their campaign. So uh, when they did indeed fund, they raked in not the $5 million that I talked about, but actually $6.5 million. And since the project has closed, they've actually signed a lease on some office space, I think in Austin, Texas, but I might be wrong about that. Uh, it looks like Robert Space Industries will soon be underway working on their very cool space sim project. And I'm super, super excited, as I've said before, to see what they bring. Thirdly, uh, here's a story that flew totally under my radar until uh, I came across an announcement about it on Twitter. It seems that a company called Overhaul Games has remade the original 1998 Baldur's Gate and is available for purchase on PC at baldursgate.com. This remake contains the entire original adventure, the expansion, uh, a new adventure, and also some new characters. And also the graphics have been updated to look, you know, nice and new and fancy on modern systems uh this definitely does bear checking out if you enjoyed the original Baldur's gate or have any interests in uh, dungeons and dragons specifically or rpgs in general i didn't play a ton of Baldur's gate back when it came out but uh, i did uh, dabble in it a little bit and i do remember it being a very interesting game so i'm uh, i'm quite interested to uh to see either maybe i'll pick it up or if anyone anyone out there has uh, has played the Baldur's gate remake that, uh, that you can get that I'm talking about now, um, please feel free, as usual, to send me an email, send me an audio comment, uh, 
quick little review of, uh, of what you think of it, how it compares to the original, and, uh, and all that. So Baldur's Gate, check it out, baldursgate.com. Fourth in the news, in Peter Molyneux news, since we did Syndicate a little while back, one of his games, uh, he has announced a Kickstarter. Hooray! For a new game he is calling Goddess, or Godus, G-O-D-U-S. Uh, this will be a modern reinvention of the original populist game concept that, uh, that we talked about a little bit in, uh, in the Syndicate show when we were chatting about Peter Molyneux. Uh, they're just under $200,000 right now and are trying to reach $450,000 with 19 days to go. Uh, there's actually an interesting discussion about this going on on uh, the Facebook group for the show. Sadly, it seems uh, Molyneux hasn't really been living up to the hype he creates in the past few years with his past few games, but I will uh, I will certainly keep watching this project very closely. As usual, I will link it in the show notes and, of course, searching for Godus or Goddess on, uh, on Kickstarter or searching for Peter Molyneux or anything like that on Kickstarter will get you there. And real-time strategy news, uh, my buddy Chris of the Ragtag Fugitive podcast pointed out a new place where you can play Dune 2 for free online. It looks like some fans took the open-source Dune 2 code and ported it over to what I believe is HTML5, and you can head over to, to uh, http colon slash slash play-dune.com. You choose your house, and you can fight for the spice. Just watch out for those sandworms. Totally free to play. Uh, I poked around in it a little bit. It works very, very well. Very cool. So go and check that out. Free to play Dune online. And as usual, as always, I will link it in the show notes. Uh, finally, in the news, I've actually been helping out some uh, some of the guys over at the Fit for Radio podcast uh, to get themselves up and running on iTunes over this past week. Uh, I just want to drop them a little plug. If you're at all interested in health, fitness, and nutrition, you should most definitely give this show a listen. It's hosted by James Lynch and Joey Shalolo. Joey is a personal trainer who Fran and I have worked with uh, in the past. He's highly qualified, and both he and James are incredibly passionate about their topic. You can find them on iTunes by searching for Fit for Radio. I think believe they're up to eight episodes now. Really, really great show. Really interesting. Really great content. And uh, you know, if you have any plans of trying to get into shape, or if you already do work out, or if you don't work out at all, and you just want to know some stuff about it and know about, you know, good nutrition and everything. These guys know what they're talking about. Fit for Radio. Check them out. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, before we get to the big topic of the show, I am very, very glad to say that I got quite a few emails this week on a variety of topics, most of which, though, were responses to last, uh, last the last Doom episode. Before we revisit Doom, though, let's jump back to uh, a previous show before that and revisit Star Control with a comment that actually came in via the comments on the Star Control show notes on the website. So these are from Father Beast, and he writes, I have to tell you a story about Star Control. It was Christmas 1997, and some neighbors bought me a computer game at a thrift store that could run on my crappy outdated computer. That game was Star Control 2, The Urquan Masters. It had the floppy disks and the manual. After reading the manual and hyping myself up incredibly for this game, I installed it and sat down for my first play. I immediately ran into the copy protection, which required me to have the map, which I didn't have. There was no way around it. I could not play the game. Fast forward to about 10 years later, when I heard about the Urquan Masters uh, was being remade as an open source game. I remembered my bitterness and not being able to play and went and got it. Several sessions later with my dial-up modem, I had the game files. 
It seemed to install and run okay, but could it be anywhere near as good as I hoped it could be? The answer is, not only was it as good as I could have hyped, as I could have hoped, it was even better. And when I got the voice acting segments for all those quirky aliens, it was even more fun. The game was amazing. I played it constantly for several months. Fast forward to listening to your podcast on the game. I was playing Mass Effect off and on for the last several months on my son's recommendation, but I remembered how cool it was, and so I got it and installed it on my cool modern machine. Yep, you guessed it, for the last few weeks, I have been playing the Urquan Masters again and completely ignoring Mass Effect. And I see just how much Star Control 2 has inspired Mass Effect. There are a lot of similarities. Thanks for the podcast. Well, thanks so much for that website comment. And, um, you know, since I started the show, honestly, my uh, my Xbox 360 has uh, has been lying dormant. I, I don't really play much con- many console games now since uh, since I'm always kind of having to uh, to research games for this show and poke around and do all that. Like my my PC has really become my primary uh, my primary gaming machine. Even you know, if I'm going to look for uh, for a new game. I'm doing that on my PC now, whereas before I would do it more on my Xbox. And I don't know. I mean, I got a new video card and all that. But I find, you know, just things work so much better on my PC. I I have a wired Xbox controller for games that support it. And so, you know, I do. There is that console, you know, sit back in front of your 50 or 60 inch TV and, and have that very immersive experience. But I don't know. I like kind of the whole lean forward experience of the PC where you're kind of leaning into the screen and kind of doing that and I don't know if it's just because I was always more of a PC gamer because of you know the games that I played here like I always had an NES I skipped the first PlayStation generation then I got a PS2 and now I have an Xbox 360 so I've always had consoles I had a Super Nintendo um but it was always the consoles were always a secondary gaming device for me but uh but yeah and then you know I also I've talked about copy protection a little bit in the past and how these days the old school you know, open the manual to page seven or show us where this star system is on the map or whatever is, is completely worthless these days with the internet. But back then, honestly, at the time it was, it was make or break. If you didn't have that manual, there was very, there were very few avenues to get it. And, uh, you know, I remember my, my mother is a, is a, an elementary school teacher and it was always a big thing. Like if I would borrow a game from my friend, which, you know, I probably shouldn't have done, but Anyways, you know, I'd give her the manual and she'd take it to school and she'd photocopy it. So I had this binder filled with photocopied game manuals so that I could do the copy protection and all that. And, uh, you know, like I said, if you, if you didn't have that manual, you could not play that game. I mean, I'm sure there, there might have been ways to hack around it and do other things. But, you know, as, as a 10, 12 year old kid, I didn't know them. The only thing that I could do was was to get the manual. And honestly, uh, you know, trying to get my mom to uh, photocopy the manual for Leisure Suit Larry 5 was uh, was a little bit awkward, but she did it. So, uh, you know, I guess we'll go with that. I won't ask too many questions. And uh, yeah. So anyways, uh, also, you know, I rarely mention it, but if people do want to leave comments on umbcast.com under the show posts, you are more than welcome to do so. I'll include them in the show just as I would with things sent in via email um you know if you kind of go onto the website onto the posting for the show and uh, there's there's a comments box down at the bottom over there just feel free to comment there if you don't feel like sending me an email i get them the same way now for a few comments i got regarding doom from uh, from last time around first we have an email from our friend andreas he writes 
Hi, Joe. I didn't write in about Doom yet for the same reason your podcast was late. There's just so much to say about that game and it's impossible to do it justice, so I'll just summarize my own experience. I got it for the SNES and I'm still seeing a psychiatrist for that. Seriously though, as bad as the SNES version was, I still had a great time playing it. Not only was it my first FPS, it was the first game that ever truly scared me. I've been a huge fan of atmospheric horror games ever since, and that eerie music you played on the show still haunts me to this day. Speaking of eerie music, have you ever tried the PSX version? It replaces the whole soundtrack, and while I can't help but prefer the original, the PSX version sounds pretty damn good. As a side note, I did get the Win95 versions eventually when my parents finally got a stronger PC. By that time, Quake 2 and Unreal were already fighting for FPS supremacy, but as far as I was concerned, Doom hadn't aged a bit. I heard about all the controversy overseas, but fortunately where I come from, Belgium, politicians don't really care about games. I'm glad you also mentioned how Doom runs on everything nowadays. My most recent playthrough was a homebrew port on my Nintendo DS. As for Alone in the Dark, like many gamers, my first experience with survival horror was Resident Evil. I've never played the Alone in the Dark series, but I'm well aware that it came first and was one of the inspirations for Resident Evil. I do own the GOG.com version of Alone in the Dark, the new, the new Nightmare, and I hope I'll get around to playing it one day because, as I already said, I love horror games. I do have one tiny gripe with the name Survival Horror, as there isn't much survival in those games. When I think survival, I think of getting yourself food and shelter like in Minecraft. Here in Japan, where I live nowadays, we call those games Horror Adventure, which is a much more fitting title. Well, thanks for that, and thanks for those comments about Doom. You know, I never played the SNES version of Doom, but, uh, you know, if it's anything like other SNES versions of uh, or ports of, of PC titles, uh, it probably wasn't very good. I know there was an SNES version of Wing Commander that I rented one time, and it was truly awful. So, um, so yeah, th- thanks for that. And as for Alone in the Dark, well, let's hope that um, you'll, uh, you'll get some information out of that and uh, you'll have a bit of uh, motivation to play that uh, play the new Nightmare that you purchased. Finally... We have an email from BJ, and he writes, While I haven't ever played Doom or its sequels, I have played a so-called Doom clone called Marathon. These three games, Marathon, Marathon Durandal, and Marathon Infinity, were created by Bungie, and are considered by all who played them, myself included, as not only precursors to Bungie's later game series Halo, but far, far superior to Halo in every conceivable way. Of course, they were exclusive to the Mac, and for the most part, save for Marathon 2 Durandal, which did get PC and Xbox Live Arcade ports, but uh, a few years ago, Bungie open-sourced the Marathon trilogy, and now you can play all three Marathon games for free by going to source.bungie.org. Hope you enjoy, BJ Wanlin. Thanks so much, BJ, and uh, you know this is why one of the reasons I love you guys sending stuff in. I think if I, if I rack my brain really hard, I can maybe remember mention of of the marathon series but i had no idea that a they were made by bungie and b they were the uh the precursors to the halo series now because i skipped that whole first generation of uh you know the first playstation generation and the original xbox i got into halo and i guess so that by extension got me into bungie uh much later i really only got into halo around halo 3 so when i got my xbox 360 the first thing i did i knew i wanted to play halo 3 so I went, uh, I guess, on to Xbox Live Arcade. They had Halo 1 for download. So I downloaded that, played through the story, got Halo 2 off of eBay, played through that, and then finally played Halo 3 because I knew that it was very story-driven and I wanted to know the whole background and you know Master Chief 
and all of that. But, you know, I really should now that I can get these for free or, you know, open source, I should go to source.bungie.org, check out these marathon games. You guys should too. And, uh, you know, we can talk about them. I, I, may, I may do an episode on these because, frankly, it sounds very cool to see, you know, the precursors to Halo and, and see why it is that uh, people consider them to be superior to Halo even because Halo, frankly, as a series is uh, is also groundbreaking. Sadly, it's not one I will likely cover on the show because it's uh, it's console-based. But um, but yeah, thanks so much for that, BJ. I'm definitely going to look into the Marathon series. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... On to our main topic for the week, Alone in the Dark. Alone in the Dark is a series of five games spanning from the original release in 1992 through all the way through 2008. The original game was developed by Infograms and also published by them in Europe. In North America, the game was put out by Interplay. So time for the genre, and it's important to discuss this one this time around. Despite the fact that I've sat here 18 times now, we've hit a new genre. Alone in the Dark is a survival horror action-adventure game. These games draw very strongly on the conventions of classic horror fiction. By design, they try to elicit a strong emotional response from the player. They tend to cause the player some anxiety, punctuated by moments of fear, followed by briefer moments of relief. Story-wise, they also tend to follow classic horror fiction tropes. Haunted mansions, old lonely roads late at night, graveyards. Sometimes they contain an overarching mystery to be solved, and at other times they simply require their characters to survive their current circumstances, and a story kind of evolves throughout their adventure. Uh, These games also tend to have very few characters. Most of the backstory tends to be told via found objects such as letters, books, or recordings. The sense of isolation also helps in creating tension. Unlike many of the other action games we've looked at, survival horror games tend to de-emphasize combat over puzzle-solving and evading confrontation. Basically, survival horror games are the opposite of first-person shooters. In an FPS game such as Doom from last time, you tend to be this huge, well-armed, ass-kicking military guy, marine, or something like that. Ammo is plentiful, and you can take a lot more punishment than the hordes of dead enemies you leave in your wake. So, how do survival horror games de-emphasize combat? Easy. They make it very hard for you to prepare for combat. They make it hard to arm yourself. They make it hard for you to heal yourself. You are at a disadvantage versus your enemies. This can be done versus in, you know, in a variety of ways. Usually it is through making weapons and ammunition very scarce. And as I said, making it difficult to heal yourself and making each fight challenging. You're not going to be mowing down enemies in any of these kinds of games. The enemies are stronger than you. In addition, unlike most other games we've come across, survival horror games tend to have a limited inventory and the concept of encumbrance. You want to carry that shotgun? Okay, but that means you can't carry these four other items you may need down the line. Suffice it to say, survival horror games try their best to keep you on edge, scare you from time to time, and definitely make sure you never quite feel like you have a handle on your situation. So as we usually do, Once we get through the genre, we will go on to the story, which plays a very, very important role in Alone in the Dark. So in 1924, Jeremy Hartwood, noted artist and owner of the Louisiana mansion named Dersetto, has reportedly hanged himself in the mansion's attic. His death appears to be incredibly suspicious, yet surprises no one. The case is investigated by police and deemed a simple suicide as all evidence pointed to the fact that Hartwood was mentally unbalanced. As the game begins, 
we are given the option of selecting from two player characters. The first, Emily Hartwood, is Jeremy's niece. Choosing a character doesn't have much effect on the game, only the backstory and motivation for entering the house to begin with. Emily's backstory goes like this. The attorney's letter came as a deep shock to me. My uncle Jeremy had died by his own hand. The coroner's report was unequivocal. He hanged himself in the loft. Initial surprise and distress passed. I considered the news. It seemed clear that Dersetto had exercised a thoroughly morbid influence on my uncle's mind. That creaking old mansion with its unusual tales, its secret library door, the ancient upstairs clock, all those occult books that my uncle could not resist reading in spite of his fragile nerves. Fate had pointed its finger. DeSetto had trapped its prey. Mr. McCarthy, the family lawyer, suggested selling the old house. I immediately opposed the idea. My duty is clear. I must go to DeSetto. I tremble at the thought of those dark corridors, those brooding portraits. Yet I am convinced that Uncle Jeremy left a note, a letter of some kind explaining his fateful decision. I remember his voice saying, Look at the piano, Emily. Look harder. Maybe the secret drawer will yield up an explanation. I have the feeling things will not be so simple. Life is a mystery containing more mysteries. Jeremy taught me that much. Now is the time to confront the mysteries. Dersetto is waiting for me. I pray that my fear is nothing more than the fruit of my imagination. Nothing will ever persuade me that my uncle was insane. But why did he, according to the police report, block the loft window with the old wardrobe? So the other option is to play as Edward Carnby, a down-on-his-luck but respectable private investigator who is hired by a local antique dealer. His motivation for going to the house is obviously much less personal. On my door, a dull brass plate says, Private Detective. The few friends I have call me Carnby. The others call me The Reptile. I don't care to think what my banker calls me. These days, I leave my letters unopened. Bills and threats to send in the receivers just ruin my day. When an antique dealer called Gloria Allen contacted me, I slipped into my best shirt, holstered my thirty-eight, and got to her shop as fast as I could. I was expecting something sordid. Blackmail, probably. Boy, was I wrong. What I was asked to do was visit a property called Dersetto and find a piano in the loft. It was an old piano with secret drawers. 
The kind people who buy stuff in antique stores go crazy over. The Dusetto house is supposed to be piled high with classy junk. Furniture, books, paintings. It looked like whoever owned Dusetto was about to get cleaned out. I was going to bring up the subject of money when Gloria Allen handed me a hundred and fifty dollars and a key. I kept myself from grinning at the thought of my banker's surprise. He doesn't like his victims getting away. I looked over a copy of the police report. The former owner of Dorsetto, a guy called Jay Hartwood, had hanged himself in the loft. The coroner concluded it was a clear-cut case of suicide. I promised Gloria Allen I'd give the place a look over. My report will be ready in a couple of days. I've been reading up on the history of the old house. It's the kind of place ghosts run away from in terror. Grizzly murders, curses, Lunacy. <laughs> Luckily, devil worship makes me smile, so this is my idea of a paid vacation. Carnby becomes the only choice later on in the series, so I'll go with him for continuity's sake. Regardless of who you choose, your character gets into an automobile and drives up to Dorsetto. It's a dark and stormy night, the sound of Louisiana wilderness is loud in your ears. You enter the house and begin making your way to the attic, the location of the piano in question, and also the location of Hartwood's suicide. As you enter the mansion, the door slams shut behind you. You either don't notice or you don't think much of it. You slowly make your way through the front foyer, up into the hall, upstairs, and into the attic. This is where we find ourselves when the game begins. You quickly find out Dorsetto is not the safest place to be, you must use your wits, intelligence, and at times fighting skills to defeat a horde of zombies, monsters, ghosts, and booby traps in order to solve the mystery of Dorsetto and escape with your life. As I explained in the genre section, there are very few characters to interact with in Alone in the Dark. The story unfolds as you explore the rooms of the mansion. You find journals, books, notes, and letters, all of which provide backstory, clues, and hints for upcoming challenges. One of the first elements you come across is hinted at in Emily's intro. Jeremy's suicide note can be found in the secret drawer in the piano. The reason you've come to Dorsetto in the first place. And it reads. They are coming! I have freed hellish forces, and now the price must be paid. Dorsetto is the prey of evil. The sun has set. They will find my body, but will not have my soul! I can imagine the master's fury and the terror in the hearts of his slaves. <gasps> I hear their footsteps. Some may understand what I have done. May God forgive me. Farewell, Jeremy Hartwood. Oh, Jeremy certainly was in a bad way. Uh, through more of these discoveries, including Jeremy's diary... You come to know what has been happening and is continuing to happen in Dorsetto. It seems the house was built by an occultist pirate named Ezekiel Presht. 
Beneath the house are caverns used for various occult rituals whose goal was to unnaturally extend Ezekiel's life. During the American Civil War, Ezekiel was shot and the original house was burned. His servants placed his dried up body in an old tree in the caverns beneath the house. His spirit survived, trapped in the desiccated corpse. His spirit could be restored to life, though he needed a living body to act as a host. It turns out this was the reason for Jeremy's suicide. It was the only way he could prevent Ezekiel using him for this purpose. With Jeremy gone, Ezekiel focuses his attentions on you. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, that's the story in a nutshell. Let's get on to the gameplay, which truly does make this game unique. As you quickly see in the intro cutscene, Alone in the Dark is rendered in an interesting way. The characters, enemies, and certain interactable objects are all rendered in 3D. Each room in the mansion is viewed from a fixed camera angle. Right from the start, we get a lesson in how things will go in this game. After you watch your selected character, in my case it's Cranby, uh, walk up to the attic, your character is released to your control. Now, if you were paying attention to Emily's intro monologue, you will have heard this. But why did he, according to the police report, block the loft window with the old wardrobe? So, you look around and wait a second, you're in the loft, and there's an old wardrobe against the front wall next to the window. If you stand around too long trying to decipher what, what this means, a winged creature smashes through the window and starts attacking you. Less than a minute and you're already in your first fight. Not too bad for a game that supposedly de-emphasizes combat. So, you're in a fight. What do you do? Well, the controls are simple. Pressing enter brings you into the game's menu and pauses the action. The menu is split into three sections. The top half of the screen contains a list of your inventory items and an additional menu item representing yourself, which is called actions. The bottom half is split in two. The left section contains a graphical representation of the item you're looking at. If actions is highlighted, you see yourself along with a number in the top right corner. This is your health. When it reaches zero, you are dead. Otherwise, that number represents the uses of the particularly selected item, be it rounds in a shotgun, fuel in a lamp, etc. The bottom right section contains a list of actions which can be performed on the selected item. Possible default actions, if you have actions selected, are fight, open slash search, close, and push. Well, we've got a demonic creature coming right for us, so fight probably seems like a good selection. Selecting fight brings you back into the game. Now, pressing and holding the spacebar will put your character into fighting stance. With the spacebar still pressed, the arrow keys can be used for a limited set of hand-to-hand -hand fighting moves. Right will throw a fast and weak punch, left throws a slower, more powerful punch, and up and down trigger a kick. This sounds good, but frankly, the fighting controls are really, really quite clunky. This bird demon is quite quick. If you don't time your attacks just right, it'll hit you, sapping away your precious life. If you're good enough, a general hand-to-hand -hand strategy is to focus on trying to kick as much as possible as kicking has a slightly longer range than the punching attacks do. Of course, kicking is also very slow. It takes a good three seconds after, uh, for a kick to complete after it's been triggered. If you're hit mid-kick, you stop kicking. If an enemy gets too close, you should switch to punches to drive it back to the edge of kicking range. 
Soon enough, you get your hands on some weapons. However, ammo for any type of ranged weapon is very, very limited, so you're better off saving that for very challenging fights. Until you acquire a melee weapon, most of your fights will be done using bare fists. So, using this method, you must defeat the evil bird thing, hopefully taking a minimum of damage yourself. Don't think that I'm joking around here. Even the simplest fights in this game are hard. Hand-to-hand fighting without taking much damage really is a challenge. Of course, had you been a bit quicker on the uptake, you may have been able to avoid this fight completely. Remember. But why did he, according to the police report, block the loft window with the old wardrobe? So, if we run over to the armoire by double-tapping the up arrow to run, then flipping to the game menu, selecting push instead of fight, standing on one side of the armoire and holding down the spacebar, we will push the armoire so it blocks the window. At the prescribed time, you'll still hear some banging against the armoire, but you will have avoided the fight. Of course, now, if you'll look over, you'll see a trap door in the floor with a trunk sitting next to it. Might the same thing work? Well, it certainly does. Pushing the trunk over the trap door prevents a zombie from entering the room. Of course, if you'd rather fight, or if you're too slow, you can take them on. The zombies are a bit easier to deal with, since they're much slower than the weird bird demon thing. Now that all that's out of the way, you can actually explore the room. This is the general process every time you enter a new room in the mansion. You walk in, you locate any threats, fight or avoid them if possible, then you search around. Immediately you notice a gas lamp on the table. Grab that, as you'll need it in quite a few places in your travels. Searching the armoire reveals an old Indian cover, which is basically a blanket. Searching the trunk reveals a shotgun. Well, that would have come in handy a second ago, wouldn't it have? Of course, you now have a shotgun with no shells, so it's really still not all of that useful. Approaching the piano, your original reason for coming here, reveals the suicide note we previously heard read, and that is all there is to find in this room. So this is how the game progresses. As you move from room to room, the camera angle changes. Objects and enemies can hide in screened off sections of the room, and in certain cases fighting can be very awkward since it may be hard to see enemies given the fixed camera position. Though this was a limitation of the game's engine, it was used to good effect. Many of the rooms use horror movie-style camera angles to further the creepy effect. Of course, there are some enemies which can't be killed by you. For example, later in the game, a suit of armor threatens you. The only way to kill it is to throw a heavy statue at it, smashing it to pieces. There are other enemies you can't kill at all. Of course, there's no way to know that you can or can't kill an enemy without trying and failing over and over again to kill said enemy. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So looking at it today, you may not think Alone in the Dark was all that revolutionary, but it certainly was. Alone in the Dark is, in fact, hailed as the first 3D survival horror game and set the standard for all survival horror games that came after, including the incredibly famous Resident Evil and Silent Hill series. The game's visuals are certainly crude by today's standards. 
backdrops for 256 color VGA 2D paintings, while your characters, enemies, and other interactable objects were created in 16 color low polygon count 3D. Uh, when I say low polygon count, I do mean it. The 3D models in this game are very, very angular, with hard edges, jaggies, flat textures, and fairly robotic movements. However, this was unheard of in 1992. Computers and even game consoles just didn't have the power to render 3D on the fly. We had pseudo-3D games like Wolfenstein and fast-action console games like Mario Kart, but very little in the way of actual, true, rendered 3D models. That isn't to say that uh, Alone in the Dark set the standard for fast-paced action. By design, it's a very slow-moving game. The performance of the 3D engine was attained by only having a few 3D objects on the screen at once, and only rendering the background as flat 2D matte-style paintings. Of course, since the backgrounds were only drawn from a single perspective, this forced the designers, as I just said, to give each room a fixed camera angle, as there was no real way to change the perspective without adding additional drawings, which would somehow have to be taken from fixed viewpoints, and switching between them would just be awkward, and honestly, it didn't really give anything to the game. However, this technical limitation was turned into an advantage and a trope of the genre by using those fixed camera angles to create additional tension in the game's atmosphere. Finally, as I usually do, I have to talk about the sound and the music of Alone in the Dark. These are probably the biggest contributors to the atmosphere of tension in the game. When it came to pure sound design, Alone in the Dark was one of the few games of the time to use ambient sound. Storm crashes, floorboards creaking, the house itself made you nervous through its ominous sounds. Then, of course, there were the enemies. They made noise whether they were in sight or not. So I hear a zombie, but I don't see it. I block the window, the bird demon still tries to break in. The sound design in this game really does do its job well. Then we come to the music. The soundtrack was composed by Philippe Vacher, who was the in-house composer at Infograms at the time. The original disc version of the game used MIDI arrangements of Vache's tracks, and they were really quite good. However, the game's music really shines in the 3DO and CD-ROM versions. Because of the CD storage capacity, the game could not only be voiced, but the tracks could be stored in full quality Redbook audio. Vache attempted to emulate the same cues from horror film scores and tried very much to carry themes from the main title across the entire score. From the eerie, unnerving track Alone in the Dark, which plays as you explore, to the intense battle against evil, which occurs when a fight is imminent, to the Blue Danube Waltz playing on a gramophone, the game's music is just a masterpiece of atmospheric sound design. So as it does with many of the games I cover on this show, Alone in the Dark started as the brainchild of one man, Frederick Reynal. Reynal was born in 1966 in, and, and forgive me here, I believe it's Brive de la Gaillarde in the Corrèze province of France. 
Starting in high school, he programmed early LED games for the ZX81, and eventually found his way into more traditional game design as a hobby. At the same time, he worked in his father's computer shop repairing machines. Oddly though, not only was his father's business a computer store and repair shop, but it was also a video rental store. Raynell states that when he wasn't programming or fixing computers, he was watching movies, as many as he could. He was especially drawn to horror films. He tended to define his favorite kinds of films as a guy or group of guys who enter a special environment and try to survive. So after all this work at the store and on games in his spare time, he came on board with French game company Infograms. Uh, he, his, first, his first task was to port the Atari game Cube to PC. This was effectively a 3D PC version of a Rubik's Cube. It took Raynell six months to do the conversion, but something from this job stuck with him. He spent six months sitting inside a virtual rotating cube. The 3D environment motivated him, got him thinking about what he could do next in this 3D space. Based on his love for horror movies, his initial idea for a 3D game was an adventure action type game where a player has to defeat zombies and monsters all alone in an isolated environment set around the year 1920. He liked his time period because electricity had become common, but technology was still very limited. The goal of the game was simple. You enter a house, and now all you have to do is get out alive. He also knew he needed to add text to place the character and events into a context. His game couldn't just be about killing zombies. It needed a deep and engaging background story. He ran this all by an artist friend, Didier Chanfray. Didier came up with a quick image of a man standing in front of a mansion holding a gas lamp. This would eventually evolve into the game's cover art. Raynal was excited and somewhat intimidated by the scope of what he wanted to do. He needed to think of ways to do things and leverage very primitive 3D modeling tools to make his vision a reality. He knew computers of the time and the engine he was designing could only support rendering very few 3D objects at once, so he decided he'd take photos of an old mansion and use them as backgrounds for the action. He soon realized using photos wasn't good enough. He needed hand-drawn bitmaps to give himself the flexibility to make a truly unified experience. Raynell had gathered a small team, including a 3D artist, 2D artist, programmer, and level designer to help with the flow of the mansion. By 1991, they had a multi-room demo, which was approved by Infograms. It was time to make Alone in the Dark. Raynell went ahead and created his own scripting language to help the artists and animators design uh, you know, whatever they could think of within the constraints of the world. This is kind of a very common way to go about building games. You'll build tool sets that uh, you know other, other members of the team could use to kind of speed along and not have them worry about you know technical aspects of things. So this is what Raynal did. Also in 1992, PCs were evolving at a geometric rate. Uh, you, know, you went from 286s to 386s to 486s, all in a very short time span. So uh, the game engine was designed to scale with the speed of the machine it was running on. There were not many settings to play within the game. Based on the speed of the computer, the game engine would simply take more time or less time between drawing each movement frame. He also had many, many ideas about how to scare his players. His main focus was having a deep, intense, and dark story. But he also used the environment to his advantage as much as he could. Having unavoidable traps spring up in unexpected places would keep the player on their toes just moving from place to place, doing the thing that you do in every adventure game, walking. Uh, he implemented limited inventory and ammunition to give the player a sense of helplessness. However, if you did take the time to read everything you came across, 
All the books and all the letters and everything contained hints on how to kill your enemies. He wanted to reward smarts and penalize the use of brute force. This was not intended to be a fighting game. Since Raynal is a self-admitted perfectionist, by the game's release in October 1992, he basically hated it. Small issues in implementation bothered him, such as thrown objects not taking a proper ballistic arc and other little details like that. These issues frankly ended up not mattering at all. Alone in the Dark was a massive success, becoming one of the most influential video games of all time and spawning a genre all its own. The next year, Alone in the Dark 2 was released. The game took a different approach than the first. It finds Edward Carnby investigating the kidnapping of a young girl, which leads him to a mansion serving as a home to an infamous gangster boss. He and his henchmen turn out to be the corporeal forms of a pirate crew that died at sea hundreds of years ago. In Alone in the Dark 2, the horror theme was de-emphasized for a vigor focus on fighting and action. 1994 brings us Alone in the Dark 3, where Carnby, now known as a supernatural private investigator, uh, investigates the disappearance of a film crew in an old western town. Uh, on that film crew was Emily Hartwood, the other playable character from the first game. It turns out the town is cursed, and Carnby has to deal with an evil cowboy before he can save the day. Alone in the Dark 3 returned to the survival horror roots of the original game. That ends the initial run of three games, and now we have kind of a decent amount of break until 2001, which brought us Alone in the Dark, The New Nightmare, aka Alone in the Dark 4. This game brought back the male-female character choice from the original and took it a step farther. You could play as Carnby, fighting your way through the game with your double-barreled revolver, or you could play as university professor Aline Sedrak, whose storyline focuses much more on puzzle solving. The game was relatively well-received, and unlike the original game, choosing a different character gave you a very different experience and a completely different storyline. So after that, we jumped to 2008 for the fifth and final installment, simply renamed Alone in the Dark. This game had a series of episodes you could play through as Carnby. If you wanted to skip an episode, you could, and each episode would start with uh, previously on Alone in the Dark. Uh, it received generally negative reviews and frankly wasn't all that good of a game. So is 2008 the end of Alone in the Dark? Well, thus far it is, though the last game was left open for a sequel, but I would say given that it's, uh, it didn't do all that well, we may not be looking at, uh, at a sequel from that direction. Frederick Reynal has also been heard saying that he'd be more than happy if someone made an HD remake of the original game. So who knows, maybe a Kickstarter's in our future? I'd be very interested to see the gameplay of the original remade with modern graphics and sound. There aren't many games that had the depth of story than the original Alone, Alone in the Dark did. Where can we get Alone in the Dark today? Well, you can grab the pack of Alone in the Dark 1, 2, and 3 on GOG.com for $5.99, and a new Nightmare as a standalone game also on GOG for $5.99 on its own. So it's very easy to get your hands on these games and give them a whirl. They run great without any problems. The sound is all there. The voice acting is all there. Real, real fun. Hi, my name's Kenny, and I'm a fanboy. Do you like Star Trek, Star Wars, Harry Potter? Do you consider yourself a brown coat or a twihard? Are you into cosplaying, LARPing, a furry? Can you speak Klingon or Elvish? Can you name all the doctors and their companions? 
you just love football or can't get enough of your favorite music group, then this podcast is for you, Confessions of a Fanboy. Each episode, I sit down with a fanboy or fangirl and discuss their fandom and how it affects their daily lives. Be it geeky, sporty, or musical, fandoms can span a wide range of people. So come subscribe to Confessions of a Fanboy on iTunes, or visit us online at confessionsofafanboypodcast.com and take a listen to fellow fans talk about the love for their fandom. So, does Alone in the Dark hold up today? Well, this one isn't as straightforward as I thought it'd be. I didn't play this game when it originally came out. Horror was never really my thing, and though I had heard all about Alone in the Dark, read reviews of it, and always thought I should play it, it just never made its way onto my hard drive until this week. I thought, based on the primitive graphics and poor controls, that this game would not interest me for a moment. I was wrong. Once you get a fight or two under your belt, this game is compelling. The atmosphere is so well developed, the music and sound are so good, the pacing is so ominous that you very quickly forget about the dated graphics. I can see why this game spawned an entire genre which is still thriving today. If you like survival horror games like Resident Evil, Silent Hill, Fear, heck, even Doom 3 from last week, check out Alone in the Dark. It's truly an accomplishment of storytelling and is much, much more than the sum of its parts. So that's that. Thanks so much to everyone who emailed or commented this time around. I love getting your thoughts on all these games. It makes each show better if you guys write in. Next time, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm actually leaving on a small vacation down south uh, for a week, the Saturday before the show usually comes out. So to try and minimize a bit of research this uh, research time, I'm going to do a bit of an in-depth review of the new XCOM Enemy Unknown game. I've been playing it quite a bit, and since XCOM definitely falls under the umbrella of this show, I figured we could do a little time warp to modern day and see where a classic game series has come. As always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. In addition, I added a cool new feature on the website. If you go to umbcast.com and look over on the right edge of the screen, there's a tab there now that you can click on to drop me a voicemail right from your computer. Just hit record, talk into your mic, and I will get sent an email recording of what you say automatically. So with all that aside, thank you as usual to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes and a couple of other posts here and there at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We have a lot of Great discussions there. I know we were talking about some stuff in the news section. That's where I grab a lot of stuff for the news. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of cool interactions going on over there. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. And as always, please do subscribe to the show on iTunes or stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Thanks again, everyone. And we will see you next time for XCOM Enemy Unknown here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.